Greyhound leader to track one, over. Track one, we reach Greyhound leader, over. Hello and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. This is not Mark, this is Jason, your Brooklyn correspondent. And we're here today to talk about a book. About 11 months ago, in February of 2020, I was at the Gallifrey One Convention in Los Angeles. And that is my cat Ginger in the background. Ginger says hello. And I bought a book called The Black Archive, number 39, The Silurians by Robert Smith. And I bought the book about the episode, Doctor Who and the Silurians, which is about a deadly pandemic that nearly threatens all of humanity. And I said to myself, this is far-fetched. This is never going to come back to be scary or relevant. And I think two episodes before, this was in the middle of Series 12, the episode Praxis aired about a deadly virus that threatens humanity. And I said to myself, well, this is never, ever, ever going to be relevant. And, of course, uh, the last 11 months have been quite a uh, wake-up call to uh, those of us, especially here in the United States. As I record this on Saturday, January 9th, uh, the two deadliest days of the COVID-19 pandemic have been out of the last four, when the U.S. Capitol was invaded and sacked by a mob of white supremacist fascists on Wednesday, That was also the deadliest COVID day in the history of the United States, 3,895 deaths, until the day after that, Thursday the 7th, in which over 4,000 people died. So, in order to give myself a break from the Michigas that's going on outside, I have with me today the author of that book, and would our guest please introduce themselves. All right, thank you very much for having me. So, uh, my book was published under the name Robert Smith, uh, but I have since changed my name and gender, so I am now known as Stacy Smith. Uh, but I am perfectly comfortable referring to past things as done by Robert. So whatever was published was published because I have a large body of work and uh, many people who transitioned did not have this problem to deal with. Um, and so uh, I just decided to draw a line in the sand and so past things are by Robert, future things are going to be by Stacey. Um, I know it sounds a little confusing, but I figure if the doctor can regenerate into a woman, then so can I. That's a really extreme way of showing your support for Jodie Whittaker there, Stacey. I'm such a fangirl. <laughs> Uh, the most burning question about your transition, though, is the book was published under Robert Smith question mark. Are you keeping the question mark? I am absolutely keeping the question mark. I might be changing something pretty trivial like gender. I am not changing the fundamentals. In that case, I am very, very happy. I'm going to read out your biography because if I have you introduce your own credentials, we're going to be here for the next week and a half. And I think your biography is a nice, neat summation of uh, who you are and where you've been. Robert Smith, question mark, the question mark is part of his name, is a professor of disease modeling at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Using mathematics, he studies infectious diseases such as HIV, malaria, human papillomavirus, influenza, Ebola, neglected tropical diseases, dot, 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 and zombies. He's published over 100 academic articles, is a winner of the Guinness World Record for his work on modeling a zombie invasion, was the winner of the 2015 Mathematics Ambassador Award, given by Canada's Partners and Research Association for Science Communication, and won the 2018 Society for Mathematical Biology Distinguished Service Award for exceptional contribution to the field of mathematical biology and its advancement outside of research. Outside of his day job, he's the author of Who is the Doctor, Who's 50, and The Doctors Are In, ECW Press, and Bookworm, ATB Publishing, Guides to the Wonderful World of Doctor Who, He's also the, the editor extraordinaire of the Outside In series of pop culture reviews with a twist, ATB Publishing, covering Doctor Who, Star Trek, Buffy, Angel, and Firefly. Oh, 
and he's the world's leading expert on the transmission of Bieber fever, but let's not worry about that one. Stacy, thank you very much for being on the show, and let's just jump in and talk about what has become the most interesting subject of the book. You have the following sentence in the book, which was written, I expect, about a year and a half ago, and has only gotten more disturbing with time. You write, faced with the rise of the far right, the return of Nazis, climate change, anti-vaxxers, and malignant buffoonery in our leaders, what are we supposed to do? This is a painfully prescient sentence in a way that most Doctor Who is not. Uh, what brought you to a place where not only did you write that sentence, but it turned out to be even more true today than it was on the day that you wrote it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, the, a lot of this stuff is not surprising, right? It's it's totally predictable. Um, so, you know, my day job, I deal with trying to predict unpredictable things, and they're mostly pretty predictable, right? Um, you know, you can't predict every single tiny nuance, but you can certainly see broad patterns. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I published an article in 2017 that was basically like, you know, okay, what's the next pandemic going to look like and what are we going to have to do? And it's basically masks, distancing, quarantine, like it, it effectively predicts COVID-19 three years earlier, right? And so, and that's because I steep myself into the, you know, the structure of things. Um, that's where my mathematical background really comes in handy. Right? So, you know, with math, you can understand structure and structure is the essence of matter, as they say in Logopolis. Um, and so, uh, but it's really true. I mean, Logopolis was the thing that made me a Doctor Who fan because I was like, uh, sorry, it was maybe a mathematician. I was already a Doctor Who fan. Um, but Logopolis was like, like, oh my God, you can use math to change the world? Like, oh, I'm in. I'm totally in. And so I was like, all right, I'm doing that. Um, and, and so I think you basically just look at patterns, essentially, and then, and then start to, to make predictions. Um, and yeah, you know, sad but true, like all this stuff was totally, totally on the cards. Um, it's been on the cards for a very long time too. I think that, you know, probably since Reaganism, right? We've been shipping away at infrastructure and infrastructure is very clearly the only thing that separates us from every other society in the world. Um, I do a lot of teaching in Africa um, in various other places and it's just painfully obvious, like, you know, them for the grace of God go us and what's keeping us from like, you know, all kinds of, problems, right? And the answer is, it's only that we, we pre-plan for things, right? And why did we pre-plan? We pre-planned because we faced, like, you know, massive societal things like the Second World War and decided we all had to be in it together. And so we invented things like the welfare state and, like, you know, like socialized medicine and stuff. Well, you know, you guys didn't, but the rest of us did. Um, so, We're trying to know, destroy like, socialized medicine. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and so, you know, we, we basically sort of, you know, about 70 years ago kind of went, oh, we, we kind of have to all chip in together. And there was this sort of, you know, I mean, you had the New Deal and stuff like that. And like, you know, this, this kind of like, there was, there was this sense of, like, we got to pitch in together because... Otherwise, we're in real trouble. And then it's sort of, you know, you, you go along for a while and then you reach this peak and then you start to go downhill and sort of be like, oh, well, we don't need those anymore. And this is exactly what you see with diseases and vaccines, right? If, you know, when the first vaccine came along, right, everybody, you know, was like, oh, my God, am I, you know, seven of my children have died from smallpox, so I better get the vaccine. And then a generation later, people say, well, what do I need this vaccine for? There's no smallpox around. So they stop getting it. And then you, you see anti-vaxxers turn up. And then, like, you know, well, what happens? Of course, smallpox comes back and it starts killing people again. And you, you, this cycle goes on for 200 years until finally smallpox is eradicated thanks to an effective vaccine. Um, and now people say, oh, well, I haven't seen any relatives die lately. And, you know, oh, incidentally, our life expectancy is about double what it was 100 years ago. But I'm sure that's a total coincidence. And, you know, I don't like vaccines, so let's not get a vaccine. And you're like, have you people used your brain lately? Like, it's just, you know, it's very frustrating, although I'm also in some ways very sympathetic 
um, because actually one of my points in the book is that you know we have been chipping away at the process of, of information transition. Um, it, you know, newspapers used to have dedicated science reporters who would essentially translate what's happening in science to the average reader, and this doesn't exist anymore because we have you know cut budgets for you know like media and newspapers and so on. Um, and so now it's kind of like you know you get you know you get some sense of sort of facts ish. Uh, and you get a lot of opinion, um, and you now have ways to transmit that information like really quickly, right? And it's basically a crucible waiting to to explode because you you know people people can't deal with not enough information, and then they also can't deal with too much information. And we're living in a world where there's too much information, and so what happens is you just kind of like you pare down, and the way you pare down is you fall into your your echo chamber, right? And so you know all this stuff has just been there for so long, um, and all we're seeing is this just amplifying. Um, so yeah, I mean, we could we could go on for a long time about all this stuff, um, and you know, it's it's I guess it's it's hard to it's hard to watch, um, um, and I think like I spent I spent the last two years not living in in like Western society. Um, I was on sabbatical and I was you know busy traveling the world and living in you know Cameroon and places, um, and coming back I was you know like that was as a lot of the Trumpism stuff was kind of really ramping up and people were like oh my god it's a disaster. And I'm like you have no idea how great Western society is. Like I've just been out of it and and I'm like so wowed by like all the stuff we've done. Like let's not lose it. <laughs> it's pretty good. There's a very famous line from the 1977 Doctor Who: The Face of Evil about the very powerful and the very stupid having one thing in common. They don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter the facts to fit their views, which can be very uncomfortable if you happen to be one of the facts that needs altering, which I think is the uh, literal definition of what's going on with the current administration in the U.S. and their non-response to COVID. So before we get into the book itself, Robert, or Stacy, I should say, tell me we're not all going to die of COVID-19? We're not all going to die of COVID nineteen. Uh, that that is pretty clear, actually. That was that was actually my starting point. Uh, was like, you know, could a Silurian plague kill us all? And the answer is no, no way. Now, could it kill you individually? Perhaps, right? So, like, no one no one is immune per se. But as a society, are we all going to die of a disease? And the answer is, is it's it's almost impossible. Uh, I mean, I, like, I never say never, but it's basically impossible, right? Uh, because. We're we're a very like diverse species genetically, um, so we we are built to survive diseases. Um, we're also built to die from diseases. I mean, the reason we die from diseases is not because diseases want to kill us. It's because that's an evolutionary advantage that we have, right? It it is to our group advantage to ensure that we die from from things that are going to you know protect us, you know, the rest of us. Now that's a very harsh way to think about life, of course, but that's that's nature for you. Um, and and we live in a society where we don't want to do that, right? We don't want the weak to die, so we are expending an enormous amount of effort to ensure that we don't die. Um, but the question of are we all going to die is, is clearly not, right? Um, and even something, you know, like fantastical, like a zombie invasion, which I also talk about, you know, even then, like, it's not it's not impossible to imagine that, like, yes, the zombies are biting all of us, but somebody has a random mutation that protects them from from this disease, be it zombies or COVID-19 or whatever, right? And then they're just immune to it. And, you know, this certainly has happened before, it happened in the Black Plague, people were randomly immune to the Black Plague, a very small percentage of people, but those people, of course, then, you know, survived and then had kids and then evolution basically kicked in um and you know 200 years later like the the mutation that those people had is now present in like 10 percent of the european population um, because it was selected for um, and so you know similar things would happen for sure and also in the scheme of things covid 19 is not that serious a disease in terms of deaths right so you know the um spanish flu in about 100 years ago that killed sort of you know 50 to 100 million people in its first year right so covid 19 has killed like you know 1.5 million people in its first year 
Um, so, you know, in, you're talking a massive order of magnitude larger, and that was something we survived anyway. Um, so, you know, the, the answer of, like, are we all going to die is clearly no. But does that mean we should do something about it? Absolutely, we should do something about it, because, you know, this was 100% avoidable. Uh, that's, that's the irony of COVID-19, uh, because all diseases have a window of opportunity. And so diseases arrive, and if you can, you know, basically, like, you know, tamp them down quick enough at the beginning, then you can actually stop them. This is exactly what we did with SARS, right? We dealt with SARS quickly, right? And, you know, things like contact tracing that we know how to do, we don't need any special, you know, resources or inventions to do, right? You start basically tracking the cases, isolating, you know, treating as needed and so on. Um, you can stop it. And we had a two-month window <laughs> for COVID-19. We knew December 2019 this thing was coming, and we basically did nothing about it till March. Um, and so, you know, this sort of just we wished it away, essentially. And it's like, well, boy, has that come back to bite us. So we could have easily stopped this disease in its tracks, and we chose not to. It really was a choice that was made. It may have not been a conscious choice, and maybe with all the information, we wouldn't have made that choice, but we still made it. Um, and so, therefore, we have to live with the consequences. And I always say it's better to have a fence at the top of the cliff than an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Um, we're now dealing with the bottom of the cliff scenario, and it's, it's much worse. So in brief, it's 11 months on, and we're getting 4,000 deaths a day here in the States. What can the U.S. do to better control the COVID virus? Uh, well, they could try doing lockdowns, for one thing, which they haven't really done. Right? Uh, and I include Canada in that. We're not very good at lockdowns. Um, people think they are because they, they're suffering inconveniences. But if you look at, you know, like COVID has been completely controlled in many countries, right? So Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, like, but also, you know, more dense countries like Vietnam and so on. Right? You know, in, like New Zealand, for instance, right? You know, in you know, mid-March, when the first sort of signs of COVID were coming, the Prime Minister said, where you are tonight is where you stay. You do not leave your house. And, you know... A few months later, they have, they have no COVID cases whatsoever. They are having, you know, concerts. Uh, they are having, like, you know, travel internationally with, you know, other safe countries like Australia. All right. So, you know, they got rid of that. Uh, Australia, they had, you know, they didn't do quite so well at the beginning, but then they had a they had a massive outbreak um, in Melbourne in the south in July. They were having as many cases per day as the UK was having. Uh, now, you know, a few months later, the UK is an absolute disaster, and Melbourne got to zero, right? And they did it by basically enforcing lockdown, right? And it's you can leave your house maximum one hour a day. During that one hour, you do all your groceries, exercise, anything you need to do. Don't do ridiculous things like send kids to school. That is, that is the worst thing you could do. That is pandemic preparedness 101 is you close the schools. Everyone knows that. Like, this is, this is absolutely outrageous that, that they are trying to sell this as like, oh, it won't be so bad. It's clearly bad. Um, there's, you know... All the tools that we have at hand, we should employ, um, you know, mandatory masks, like, you know, actual enforcement of things. Um, and, you know, is, is that trampling on human rights? Absolutely it is, right? Uh, and yet, so does wartime, right? This is a wartime scenario. You have to deal with it with wartime procedures. And then you get out of it, and then you go back to life as, as normal. And if you don't do that, which is, I guess, a legitimate choice, which is the choice that we've made, then you live with it. And that's what we're doing. And you go in and out of lockdowns for the foreseeable future. Um, and then you hope that science comes along and saves all your problems because, you know, that's that's how we rely on science. Like, we don't like science much, and a lot of people reject it, and yet we desperately hope that it will come through with the goods. And that's pretty much what's happened, right? So, you know, we have a vaccine, but of course, you know, vaccines are only as good as the people who take them. And so that's a, that's a totally different picking time bomb that's waiting to happen. And, I, you know, like I dread to think how that's going to be in Canada, and I can't even imagine what it's going to be like in the US. Um, I think only when you have mandatory kind of requirements, so like you don't enter the grocery store without proof of vaccination, um, that's how you're going to get people vaccinated enough. Um, and if you do this kind of half, you know, half-ass wishy-washy kind of like approach, then it's going to be, it's going to be another disaster on top of disaster. 
which leads us into many themes of the book, and the book, of course, is Black Archive, number 39, Doctor Who and the Solorians. My guest is the author, the author Stacy Smith. Stacy, how did you become a Doctor Who fan in the first place? Oh, I watched I watched a John Kirby story when I was five years old. It was The Great Dead, episode six, and I, I actually, it was very funny because I remember very clearly my TV schedule was full. I was like, I'm too busy to watch another show. And my, my dad was watching it because he'd been a fan of William Hartnell back in the day. And he, he liked all of William Hartnell's movies and, you know, he liked his TV shows. He just, he was just like a fan. And, and so I, I kind of think I might have been the first second generation fan because, like, that wasn't a thing back then, but it's quite common now. Um, and, and so, you know, my dad was watching the show for all time's sake. And I, I came out and I looked at it. I was like, oh, my God, this looks so good. And I was like, no, no, I can't. I can't commit. I went back to my room um, and I was making my paper airplanes and I thought, oh, I'll just pop out again. I pop out and I'm like, oh, man, this is, this is amazing. There's maggots everywhere. There's, you know, soldiers in jeeps. And there's flamboyant scientists running around saying, no, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm, I'm too busy. I went back to my room. I finished my paper planes and I thought, okay, okay, I'll just, I'll just pop out and have a look at this show. And I'm standing in the doorway and then I see the most amazing thing that my five-year-old eyes have ever seen. I see the giant fly. And I'm like, this is a thing of beauty. Like, what is this? I, 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 I'm totally hooked. So we often say, like, I went in as a boy and I came out as a fan. Like, I was absolutely 100% hooked. And, oh, look what happened in my life. I became the flamboyant scientist who, like, you know, travels the world and, like, you know, solves, solves problems. Um, you know, what a coincidence. Do you wear frilly shirts and a cape? And are you rude to everybody you meet? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it used to be that would be an embarrassing question to answer, but since I've transitioned, I can wear all the frilly stuff I want. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that was obviously, um, if you became a fan at age five, this is about 20, 25 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Yes. (laughs) And how are you still a fan all these decades later? What about Doctor Who today still appeals to you? Because obviously a lot of five-year-olds fall in love with TV shows and outgrow them by age seven. And I have a 10-year-old who's into a whole different set of shows at age five than she is today, which leaves me with all these five-year-old kids show theme songs permanently stuck in my head. And she barely remembers them. And here you are, still a Doctor Who fan. What about the show still appeals to you today? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that there's certainly a depth to Doctor Who um, in, in a way that, that there, there isn't for many children's shows. I mean, sometimes they have some sort of layered jokes or something um, but, you know, that adults can enjoy. But I think an adult wouldn't sort of sit down and watch kind of, you know, a lot of like, you know, like random Pixar things or whatever without sort of like a child kind of like, you know, like motivating them. Um, and yet Doctor Who, it, it you know, it, it was designed for this. Like it's, it's you know, I think as Stephen Moffat said, like, you know, what a radical idea. Let's make a show that everyone can watch. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, and it's so funny because when you put it that way, you're like, yeah, why do they do that all the time? Why isn't every show, you know, geared towards everyone? Um, and yet it's clearly just this, you know, they call it lightning in the bottle, I think, with Doctor Who. It's such a, it's a magical idea. Um, and I think one of the, the joys of it is just so fresh, right? The TARDIS lands, and every week, you don't know what story you're getting, right? It's like, you know, you open the doors, and is it a Western, is it a space opera, is it, you know, whatever. Like, you know, that, that's amazing. So you have this sense of wonder all the time, of like, what will it be this time? Um, and, you know, I think it, it grapples with deep concepts, right? Sort of, you know, essentially deep philosophical concepts like good versus evil, um, and... You know, but also with fun jerks and, you know, with like, you know, cool, cool explosions and stuff like that. And yet not too heavy, right? It's not kind of like, you know, dark adult material that like, you know, you want to slit your wrists afterwards and stuff. Um, so it's kind of like, it, it kind of hits that perfect sweet spot of like, it's super fun. Um, it's It's got some depth. It's, you know, it, it 
reinvents itself every couple of years anyway, so it's a bit like the weather. If you don't like what's happening now, something different will be along soon enough. Right? And so, you know, it, it, it's just this amazingly timeless thing. Um, I think that the, the cleverest part of Doctor Who is its, its ability to regenerate itself, both in front of the camera and also behind the camera. Right? So, you know, it's, it's just it's not being made by anyone remotely associated with the show who was making it in 2005, you know, it's like, and that's not even the classic series, you know, you're kind of like, like, it's just this turnover, just keeps things going. Um, and, and it basically, it's, it's, it's that, that timelessness of stories, because you can just, you know, do what humans do best and just keep telling stories with this amazing vehicle of like the magic box. With the exception of Orphan 55, which I believe is the one Doctor Who story that left me wanting to slit my wrists. That was a rather heavy handed ending. And of course, I say this as somebody who also was a fan of the Green Death. Oh, so, I mean, Doctor could definitely be heavy-handed. Um, I, I mean, I, actually, I didn't mind Orphan 55 at all. I mean, it was bonkers, but I didn't mind it. I, I, I always say, Doctor could survive being bad, but he can't survive being boring. Um, so I'm like, give me anything. Give me Holds of Nymon, give me Orphan 55. I don't care. Like, entertain me, even if it's, like, you know, from, from my fingers. Uh, just, just don't bore me. And Doctor Who pretty much delivers all the time. Like, you know, that's, that's what I love about it. Although the Jodie Whittaker monologue towards the camera, it's too late and you should all kill yourselves, I thought was a little too much for me, but the great thing about Doctor Who is if you get two fans in a room, you're going to have three different opinions. Absolutely, absolutely. This is the line from which I built outside in. <laughs> and how did you get commissioned for the Black Archive series? Oh, yeah, they, 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 they had a kind of weird commissioning process, but they would sort of rotate through kind of different eras. Um, and so, you know, I... I like, I, I heard about these books, and I sort of thought, yeah, I, I like this idea. I think I'd flick through a couple, and then I bought a couple, and I was like, what a great idea. Like, an in-depth discussion of, like, a single story. Um, and then, uh, I won't name the first one I bought, but I read it, and I was like, this is totally boring. Because all they've done is they just gathered all the things that everyone knows about this story and put it in one book. And I was like, that's not why I want this book. And I was like, okay, what, what should they be doing? What they should be doing is actually having a theme and, like, you know, having actually something to say. Um, and certainly many of them since have done that. Um, but that was kind of my, my initial thing. I was, like, I was like, you need to actually talk about something that's meaningful. Like, and it, like, you use Doctor Who as a vehicle to spring off into actual real discussion. Like, that to me is where my nonfiction writing is, is really built on because it's like, you know, like, I don't just want to give an, an episode guide describing the plot and stuff like that. I want to talk about, like, you know, interesting things that come up. And, and I think the richness of Doctor Who lends itself to that very nicely. And that's where these books are, are I think, were designed so perfectly for, um, is to have these long discussions. Um, and so uh, I think when they, uh, it was a, like, they'd only opened up for a couple of the Doctors. I can't remember which one, but the third Doctor's one of them. Um, so that the you could only pitch for those ones at the time. So I was like, all right, well, let me kind of narrow in. I'd actually pitch for something else, but that was already, they were already doing that one. Um, so Dr. Insolence is my second choice, but now I am so glad that was my first choice um, in the end that I got, because I was like, you know, I was kind of like, oh, well, I'm an expert in diseases. Let me talk about the one with the disease. Um, and so it just seemed like a fairly natural fit in that way. Um, and, and then, you know, it's funny because the book is actually less about disease than I thought it was going to be. Um, because essentially I tried to, you know, in little ways, match the, the structure of the book to the episodes. There's seven chapters and seven episodes, and, you know, kind of talking about all the different different pieces that go through it. Um, and I kind of just sort of, you know, threw it out there. I was like, oh, well, you know, I've always wanted to write this thing about story length. And I just had that, it was going to be an Enlightenment article years ago and stuff like that. And I was just kind of like, oh, that'll be a chapter. Um, and then, you know, I sort of just threw that out, and I was like, oh, I should talk about unit and, you know, a few other things. Um, and I, I got very fortunate that in my, my, you know, global travels, I just happened to be passing through the UK, well, I was passing through Portsmouth on, and 
going through, I was taking the train through Brighton on my way to London. Um, and it took a couple of hours in Brighton to meet with Paul Simpson, who lives there. And we had said lunch at the train station. Um, and and it was it was amazing, actually, because he's like, yeah, yeah okay, I, I've read your pitch. And, you know, like, he just he had incredible, incredible, like, you know, comments for me. Because he said, like, oh, you, you have this great line here in this pitch. What in your chapter is anything more than just this one sentence? And I was like, oh, my God, you're right. Like, this is, you're right, it is a great sentence. I knew that. But it's not a chapter. And, and it was really awesome. And I just sat there going, like, okay, okay, how do I actually write this book? And I, I mean, I'd written about a third of it at that point. Um, and, and it was sort of coming along. But I was, it really helped me to, like, actually just have the in-person meeting um, and kind of reform it. Um, and so, you know, the book was written, like, all over the world. I wrote a huge chunk of it in Kazakhstan, <laughs> just some, you know, in this hotel room for a week where, you know, nobody spoke English in Kazakhstan. I didn't speak any local language. And so I was like, well, I was, you know, sightseeing in the day. And then I was just like, all right, let me come back and write this book. Um, and, and, you know, I think, like, wrestling with the kind of philosophical questions wasn't really where I thought I was going to go. But I was like, no, this, this really demands it. Um, you have to actually think about, because my, because my original idea was not just diseases, but it was science versus ethics. Right? And so that, that's what underpins the whole book. Right? And it's sort of, you know, science is this really powerful, amazing thing. Um, and I think that it's been under attack for a long time. Uh, so, you know, people basically sort of, I, I think they, they, they jump off a lot of movies and stuff where often the scientist is the bad guy. Right? And so, you know, and that, that certainly happens in Doctor Who a lot, right? There's often these, these, you know, misguided scientists, like Davros is the obvious example, but, you know, like, you know, like the master or the Rani and stuff like that. But even just like, you know, random one-offs, like in Planet of Evil, you've got Professor Sorensen. Um, and, and so, you know, like, there's this sort of like idea of like, science is so powerful that because the average person doesn't understand it, it could do really terrible things. And I think a lot of this comes out of kind of like, you know, Second World War stuff, and like, you know, like realizing like, you know, if people are doing like horrific experiments, like what else could science do? And I think those are absolutely questions we need to ask. But I also think it's not just a knee-jerk reaction of like science equals bad, right? I think there's also like science can do amazing things. And I think one of the key things we have to do is understand what it is that science actually does. Um, and because science is not what most people think, right? Most people think there's sort of, you know, people toiling away in a lab and like, you know, coming up with stuff. And mostly science is just like, you know, I've got no idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to mess around for a while and hope that something works out. And it often does. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a really imperfect process. And I was thinking like the, the only Doctor Who episode that really, to my mind, shows science being done is Doctor Who and the Silurians, where the Doctor is like sitting there in his lab coat just experimenting kind of almost in vain like he's just he's like well you know one of these drugs or some combination thereof might hold the antidote and i have no idea and i'm just going to spend an episode you know pouring like liquids into vials and it's really slow and really boring and you know and that's what science is science is not this like you know really exciting thing and you you know you sort of see it on tv and you're like like oh it looks it looks really cool and it's all you know beakers and things flashing and, and you're like that's not how it is at <laughs> all uh, it's painstaking and boring and dull and, and you have to you know repeat all your stuff to make sure it's valid um, and so you know I, I think a lot of that stuff is sort of my my day-to-day -day passions and i've become a sort of great defender of science too um uh, because I think I'm, I'm one of the relatively few people who's actually both a scientist and also good at communication, because most of my colleagues are not talented in that area, uh, nor should they really need to be. Um, but, you know, I think because I also write and I sort of have, you know, media career and stuff like that, I'm able to kind of like communicate in a way I think that a lot of other people don't. So this book just basically became me writing down a lot of my thoughts. Now, you have more letters after your name than anyone I know, enough for two alphabets, <clears throat> to coin a phrase. This is a book that has 215 footnotes, but at least three of them I counted were to your own articles. Now, was there a limit set on how many times you could cite yourself versus other academic sources? 
there wasn't, no. Um, although I must say that there were a few more in the first draft and they, they cut a couple. Um, it was more they were cutting some things that just weren't really that relevant. Um, but no, I actually was quite conscious of that. I, I mostly didn't want to cite myself. And if, I mean, of course, citing your own stuff is the easiest thing because you know it intimately. So like, well, I know this is done and it's in a published academic article. It just happens to be authored by me, but like, you know, well, usually end other people. Um, so no, I actually did it when it was, it was super relevant. Um, um, so yeah, and... and you know, I, I, my, my beta reader, Anthony Wilson, um, who co-writes Bookworm with me, like, he was sort of like, he's like, oh, oh, I found you in the, in the footnotes. He was quite happy about that. But he was like, actually, why aren't you in this more? And I was like, yeah, it's, you know, like, uh, like I, I, I didn't want to sort of be like, yeah, here's a, here's a summary of my academic articles, because we could, we could do that all day. And did you really use a footnote to take a run at the Space Pirates? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I mean, I mean it's, it's funny because I... I mean, my, my biggest regret about this book is they cut all the jokes, um, and and I understand why. And you know, sometimes they were like, "Well, this joke isn't that funny." I'm like, "I never claimed to have funny jokes." <laughs> I have a lot of jokes, uh, and and you know, for me, a lot of my nonfiction writing is is you know, I love putting in the jokes, and, and you know, my, my books of Graham Burke and stuff like that. It's you know, it's I think they're pretty funny a lot of the time um, because I actually feel like you can make a lot of points using humor um, that are far more effective often than just like dry factual stuff. And I say this as a dry factual lecturer who te- teaches calculus. Like you know, humor is your best weapon in that. Um, and so I was, I was kind of a bit sad to lose those. So it becomes much more of a kind of, you know, like academic tome that I was kind of intending in some ways. Um, so a lot of my, my, you know, comedy, including comedy footnotes, got cut. Uh, there is a piece in the guidelines that does say comedy footnotes will be deleted. I'm like, okay, fair enough. But the Space Pirates one stayed in because the Space Pirates has zero defenders. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, <clears throat> I will say, in the interest of full disclosure, you have published seven outside in-books so far. Number eight is on the way. And I have been in all eight of those books. And thank you, of course, for putting me in print. But at the same time, when you're editing those books, your motto was always be more funny. Say this, but funnier. So it is interesting to see you write a book which is primarily more academic and straightforward in tone, minus the one comedy footnote. So the second chapter of the book explores the ideal length uh, for a Doctor Who story. Now, you and I have known each other for quite a long time, and we've had this discussion several at times. At least five years. Yeah. At least five years. Back, to, back, when you were, yes, back when you were five years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and one of the criticisms that bothers me the most, and this is regards to the classic series, uh, especially the Hartnell years, the Troughton years, the Pertwee years, where six-episode serials were the norm, the biggest complaint you find is, this serial is two episodes too long, and that's the easiest way to aggravate me. Now, of course, <clears throat> I grew up in the States watching the show on movie format. So New Jersey Network would start the Silurians at 11 p.m. and it would run until, you know, one <clears throat> forty-five uh, the next morning because if you put seven episodes together, you get nearly a three-hour movie. That is not the way Doctor Who was produced. That is not the way it was ever meant to be experienced. You were supposed to watch 25 minutes a week. And as an 11-year-old... It was impossible for me to sit through all two hours and 45 minutes of, say, The Ambassadors of Death. It's not until I'm older and I can watch it 25 minutes a night the way that the, our creator intended that I realized Ambassadors of Death is one of my favorite stories. And if you watch it properly, it is just amazing and there's not a wasted minute. So that's my take. And you have a rather similar take in your book. If you're going to go onto a chat room and somebody's going to say, why did you pick the Silurians? It's two episodes too long. How do you respond to that? Yeah, 
Yeah, good question. Uh, I actually, I, I changed a bit of my thinking through the writing of the book. Um, although I say that the core thing, I, I entirely agree with you. Um, I was once, like, I, I caught an episode of The Sensorites on, on TV once, like, they were showing it on, like, Space TV in Canada. And I was just like, oh, Doctor Who's on TV. Like, you know, and I, I'd seen The Sensorites in movie format and, like, oh, my God, it was so slow. And I loved it. It was, like, episode five or something. It wasn't one of the good ones. And I was like, this is great. This is awesome. And I was like, because it's meant to be watched this way. And I just watched that one episode. I never, you know, sat down and watched the rest of it or anything like that. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, TV was such a different beast back then because, like, you know, you couldn't assume that anyone had seen the previous episodes. So you have to bring viewers up to speed in the course of the episode through dialogue, right? So that means, of course, things are going to repeat, right? Of course, they're going to, like, you know, resummarize what's been going on. And they usually do it really cleverly and really subtly. You don't even really sort of notice that that's explicitly what's happening most of the time. Um, you know, it, like, sometimes they sort of mess it up and it becomes a bit too obvious, but, like, there's way more of it than you're kind of consciously thinking about, I think. Um, and, and so... You know, but on the other hand, I was sort of like, I, like I was going to sort of argue, I think that like, like there was an ideal storyline, like, like, and I sort of allude to that at the beginning. So, you know, basically, classic series, you know, like when when they're four episodes, you know, that feels about right. And you know, new series when it's a you know a single forty-five minute story, that feels about right. Um, and I was sort of trying to argue that, but I didn't really have a good case. And I just happened to be visiting Anthony Wilson, my co-author in, in the UK, um, on my, my year of travels. And, and this is like, hey, can I just pick your brain on this? And we, we went at it. Like, he's, he's a you know, great debating classic series fan as well. Um, and and he's, like, he's like, no, no, no. It's like, and his basic thesis was, like, they totally stole. He said, the story is as long as it needs to be. And I'm like, oh, you're absolutely right. Like, and so I was like, I will, I will take that entirely. He's like, he was quite pleased about that. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, actually, it's, you know, like the edge of destruction would not benefit from being two episodes longer, right? So you know, if, you, if you invert this argument, it's total nonsense, right? Um, the story is as long as it needs to be, and and you know I think that there's such depth in Doctor Who and the Silurians, um, you know, you, you you don't get the 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 story being nearly as effective when it's in shorter form, which we know because they remade this story multiple times, right? And you look at you know Warriors of the Deep, uh, not a great example. You look at Hungry Earth, Cold Blood, not a good example. Right? And, you know, Hungry Earth, Cold Blood is, is um, you know, fantastic, like, you know, like, summary of Dr. Nassilurians, right? It is, you know, it takes the core arguments, it strips them down to, like, a couple of lines here and there, and it kind of, like, you know, puts it in a blender and, and off we go, and it just doesn't have the weight that it needs to have, right? And so if you sort of think about, you know, when, when Matt Smith is kind of saying, like, you know, like, you know, like, this is, this is not one of those moments that's a fixed point in time. Like, this, you have the chance to change the world here. And he's like, and, but I don't have the authority to do it. And you, you humans and Silurians have to hash this out. That should be, like, incredible drama, right? This should be, like, absolutely pivotal moments. But it hasn't been earned, really, I think. And, and I think, you know, if this was, like, you know, many episodes later, um, you know, with appropriate drama and so on that, that's keeping you floating, um, and I think with all the arguments back and forth, back and forth, then it carries more weight. And, and that's effectively what Dr. Silurians is doing. Um, and you know, the, the, you know, you you really hear both sides like in a nuanced way, and not just like, well, there's there's you know, slurring side and the human side. Like you you have multiple people on on each side with different points of view, right? And so you know, the Silurian like you know like leader has a different opinion to like you know the Silurian scientist, and like you know the brigadier has a different opinion to Major Baker, right? And so and they're they're all competing sort of for like you know whose whose thing is going to win. And the Doctor is sort of trying to kind of keep everything floating in the middle and fails miserably. Like it is is a real real indictment of the Doctor's role um, in, in in sort of you know his, his newfound kind of like Earth exile. He doesn't do well at all. Um, everything everything really spirals out of control, and and he could have saved the day way earlier. Um, and and he doesn't really, right? you know, it's, it's a real loss um, at the end. Um, and so, you know, I, and I think you don't get that without the, the sheer amount of, of just effort that's put in here. 
The only exception to that, I think, is The Dominators, which is perhaps six episodes too long. <laughs> the joke being The Dominators is a five-episode story. But just to build on your point, I'm in the middle of my lockdown Doctor Who pilgrimage. Earlier in the lockdown, and this is month 11, like I said, I had all this free time since I'm not commuting to and from work anymore. And I started off by watching entire runs of 1980s U.S. sitcoms that I grew up with. And one morning, I caught my brain leaking out of my ears. And I said to myself, I need to do better watching lockdown TV. So I started watching Doctor Who in sequence in late October, starting with Unearthly Child, Cave of Skulls. And I've been going two episodes a night ever since. And as we record this, I'm in the middle of Power of the Daleks. Power is another one of those stories that the, the new series has already be, been on the air long enough to remake twice. First as Victory of the Daleks, and then last week as Revolution of the Daleks. Both of them are almost point-for-point point remakes of Power. But Power is six episodes long, which makes it a two-and-a-half-hour movie. And Victory is 45 minutes. Resolution is 70 minutes. So you would think, intuitively, Power of the Daleks is two episodes too long because the new series was able to remake it in a much shorter format. But if you're watching it 25 minutes at a time, and I'm maxing out at two episodes a night, yes, the scenes are a lot longer than we used to, which is a limitation of television in 1966. Everything is done in a studio with minimal special effects live tape. But... Every character in the story speaks in a different voice. Everyone has a different agenda. You have a governor who's at war with his deputy governor, who's at war with a security chief. You have a rebel faction. You have three scientists who do not get along. And then you have the doctor who's impersonating a high-ranking official, and absolutely nobody listens to him. And even though it's a fairly statically made story, and even though scenes go on for five or six minutes, which is not the norm today, it's much better than the two remakes, because there is time for the characters to have personality and to breathe and interact. Revolution, I think, tries that, because you do have, which is almost unique for the new series, several scenes in Revolution do not have any of the regular cast in them. So there is an effort to tell that kind of story, but I think Power, even though it's the longest and the hardest one to sit through, is easily the best of those three, the Victory and Revolution. So I am definitely now on your side of the page in that the Silurians is as long as it needs to be. And if you cut it too short, you're going to cut out all the stuff that makes the story memorable. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And actually, it's it's funny when they when they animated Power and then showed it in the in the theaters a few years ago. Um, I brought my my girlfriend along who had seen like you know two classic series <laughs> episodes. Um, she liked Cybermen, so we'd watch the Attack of the Cybermen and the Tenth Planet. Um, and we only watched the Tenth Planet in anticipation of Power. And she's like, "Oh, sure, I'm happy to come to this movie with you. Do you mind if I'm on my phone?" And I said, "Not at all. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> Power of the Daleks animated, like so on." She checked her phone twice in the entire time. And, you know, we, we watched our way through, you know, a lot of lot of TV where she'd just be on her phone, like, all the time, like, modern TV as well and stuff. And she watched Power of the Daleks because it was so gripping. And, you know, like, I was like, this is an amazing feat, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think it's like when you didn't have special effects, you really had to rely on character and you really had to rely on, like, you know, the script. Um, and I think that we, you know, we don't, we don't have that as much these days because we don't need it. And yet I think something gets lost. 
What's funny about that theatrical screening is I saw that, too, when it first came out. And I saw it in the theater in New York with Dave Adler, who I'm sure you've met at the mm-hmm. many of the Doctor Who conventions that you and I have been at. But they showed it in movie format, and they had the cliffhangers eliminated. And I was thrown off on the back foot because I forgot where some of the cliffhangers were. And I was trying to figure out, are we in episode three now? Is this episode four? And I found myself, not that I was checking my phone more than once, but I found myself a little fidgety because I don't want to watch a show in movie format. I want to have that cliffhanger break, even if you run episode two right after episode one. I have a minute to watch the credits and reset my brain and try and think my way through the cliffhanger. So as much as I enjoy power, I don't think it benefits in movie format, and I tried. But uh, my compliments to your girlfriend for being riveted by that, especially because it is so atypical now, 50-odd years later. It is not the way television or movies even look anymore. So the fact that it had power over her, pardon the pun... (laughs) is pretty much a testament to what they were doing in 1966. Now, my recollection of you, and we've had many debates on Doctor Who eras over the years, going back to Rickard's Doctor Who, I don't recall you being the world's biggest fan of the Pertwee era. How good is the Silurians, even adjusting for the fact that it's 50 years old? Ah, okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct the record a little bit. I, I actually, I'm not a fan of John Pertwee's Doctor. I'm a huge fan of the Pertwee era. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I think the Pertwee setup is brilliant. I, I think, you know, exiling the Doctor to Earth is amazing, giving him this, like, you know, group, group of people who are regulars who are going to appear every week, giving him a recurring villain. All that stuff is great. I just think that the Pertwee Doctor does not really do it for me. Um, and I think he's a very, very flawed character. Actually, I must say, writing this book, I... I you know, I got a lot into his character, and I, I actually have to say, I came to appreciate it more than I, I kind of had in a long time, um, in a way because he is so flawed. Like, he, he's, he's a, you know, like, he, he blusters a lot, <laughs> but he's very ineffectual, um, and, and he doesn't seem like he's an ineffectual character, but he actually really reminds me of, of the Sixth Doctor. Um, and I was like, here are two Doctors who, like, talk a big line, like, they, they kind of have this, this quite large, like, presence, and yet, if you look at kind of, like, how things work out for them, they don't work out that well, um, especially especially in this first season. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of the Pertwee era really, really holds up. Um, and, of course, season seven is, you know, like, you know, well-known that this is an absolutely classic season. Um, and I agree with you about Abessence of Death. Like, even, you know, that's the weak point, and that's not that weak in the scheme of things. Um, and so, you know, I, certainly Dr. Silurian massively holds up. Um, I think sometimes the, the hardest thing to, to watch about it is the fact that the quality is not always so great, um, you know, because of, you know, it's, it's history of, you know, having the color white and then kind of restored and so on. Um, so it's, it's a little bit grainy here and there. Um, I think if we had like a better print of it, like it might be, might be a little bit easier to kind of, you know, grab some more people, but, um, but no, it's, it's a fantastic story. And I think the era as a whole really holds up. I you know, often, often go back to kind of like season seven stories um, because they're just, they're so inherently watchable. And the nuance in the script and the ability to add extra dimensions to tertiary characters definitely helps. Let me ask you a question then. Uh, The longest Doctor Who episode of the last year would have been Ascension of the Cybermen slash the Timeless Children. Would that two-parter have worked better if Ashad and the Master were more nuanced villains who had a morally justifiable point? Yes. (laughs) Unequivocally, yes. (laughs) Uh, and, and because when you said Ashad, I was like, what's that guy's name? Right? So, it, you know, it's hard to hold on to who the characters are because you don't get much of character in them. Um, and I, I think that when when you have just a bit more breathing space and a bit more time, um, 
you know, you get to know these people. And like you say, like when you have scenes that, that don't involve the regular cast, that's where you get to know the, the incident players. Um, and so, you know, if they, you know, don't survive the story, for example, like that's more of a tragedy because you get to know them. Or if they, you know, come back again in future, you, you really appreciate having them. Um, um, so, you know, I, I, I mean, I really liked Chris Knopf's character in, in um, Revolution of the Daleks. Um, you know, because I just thought actually like he was he was so well done and so well well played. It just like kind of like he was having like you know the most fun imaginable. But it's also like we actually got some time to get to know him, um, and and that that really makes a difference. And I was kind of like, oh yeah, it's that guy from Arachnids. But like suddenly he's not anymore. Suddenly he feels like you know more of a character. Um, and and so and I think not just in service to plot. I think that that's kind of one of the keys there. Like I mean, you know, if you can do character and the plot at the same time, of course that's that's the best. But that's, 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 you know, you need a kind of a Robert Holmes or a Malcolm Holt to kind of get those working perfectly well all the time. And those are two of the best writers there were. Not everybody can be them. But you have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to science in Doctor Who, and we've touched on some of it already with attitudes towards ethics and science. And in the book you talk about Professor Sorensen from Planet of Evil, where the Doctor literally tells him to kill himself, which is the... Uh, the cost of uh, scientific research is total responsibility. Um, but you have moments of darkness like that, and then, of course, you have someone like Terry Nation who says in one of the documentaries, well, the rocks can talk on my planet because it's my planet, and that's what rocks do, which is perhaps not the best uh, attitude for scientific accuracy. But I came to the show during the Christopher Bidmead, early Eric Sayward era, and Legopolis and Full Circle, two of my favorite stories. Uh, you, of course, have mentioned Legopolis already. We are recording this on audio, but you can see my Zoom background, which is a still from the TARDIS in Legopolis itself. So, these are, even though I'm not a scientist, these are stories that I love, and it's because of that extra layer of scientific almost accuracy. Full Circle, there's a quote now for a short course in cytogenetics. And then later on, well, you could try gel electrophoresis. Uh, this is great stuff. I'm 11 years old, and it's getting me to learn. What do these words mean? And I didn't choose that as a career, but it makes those stories better, I think, because you can look it up in the real world. Whereas, of course, you can't look up telebiogenesis because it's not a real thing, unfortunately. I know so little about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I th so I think that, you know, modern, modern science fiction... Is, is kind of like, if we have this sort of patina of science, or like science-esque, like that's good enough, right? And, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like, the, you know, the, the difference between sort of, you know, science fiction and fantasy is kind of like, you know, is there at least some semblance of a plausible explanation? Um, and that's, I think in the last, you know, many, many years, that's been good enough, right? And so, you know, like, again, I don't think we generally try and put science on TV for the very good reason that it's boring. Right, and I say this as a as a total card character scientist. Like it's totally dull, right? And so, so you know, I understand why it's not on TV. And you know, uh, on the other hand, you look at something like you know, original Star Trek, where they're doing sort of you know, actual science as well as some other things. <laughs> but you know, they, they've got sort of you know, real science in their science fiction, and it wowed people. Like they really blew them away. And so you know, it, it is possible to do. It's just it requires a depth of knowledge and I think a depth of sort of understanding as well, uh, because linking together sort of science and and drama is is challenging. Um, linking together pseudoscience and drama is very easy, right? Because the rocks could just talk if you want, and then it's all it's all taken care of. Um, but you know, you, I think you come to some point where you, you 
you've blurred the line a lot between science fiction and fantasy. And Doctor Who definitely blurs that line. I mean, the TARDIS alone, right, is, is you know, it's built into the DNA of Doctor Who that, like, this is a, a show that's certainly pretending to be science fiction. Um, whether it is in actuality is, is a totally different thing. And I'm perfectly fine with that as well. I, 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 you know, I don't mind if the science in Doctor Who is totally loopy. I'm, I'm like, I'm not here for scientific accuracy. I'm here for, like, you know, a fun show on TV. But I think that when you do get it right, you add this, this level of interest. I think especially for kids and, you know, like, like I, I used to always do the um, the science panels at Doctor Who conventions, um, and and what always amazed me is how many kids come to the science panel. And I'm like, this is this is awesome, right? We we definitely need kids coming to the science panel. And I was at one convention once where they they shuffled the schedule. They put the science panel at two in the morning, and so I was quite happy to go there. And I was amazed by how many kids were at the two in the morning science panel. And what happened was they all planned their their sleeps so they would sleep a bit, and then the parents would wake them up and bring them to this two a.m. I was like. This is amazing to me that like kids are like you know like wanting to go to the science panel so badly that they will go at two in the morning, um, and so I think that we have a real opportunity to reach you know reach children, and I think that like I'd say a lot of Doctor Who fans forget that like children are also a part of the audience, and I don't think they're the whole audience, but they are also a part of it, um, and you know perhaps less so for you know parents like you who are like you know having the kids around it more, um, but I think a lot of us you know childless fans are like oh I didn't enjoy that. It's like okay, it's not actually for you. Like, it, it should be a bonus if you enjoy it, but it's not actually built for you. And so, you know, I, I think that, like, you know, science, like, communication, I think, is, is such a is such a, a rare commodity these days. Um, and something like, you know, Doctor Who has the chance to actually, like, build this sense of excitement and wonder and so on that you really can inspire, like, you know, young scientists to, like, come out of, like, watching Doctor Who just like I did. Like, as I totally did out of Logopolis, right? And so you could you could make more of me, um, and, and why aren't we doing that? Right? So uh, we have a great opportunity here. So here's a related question. You have, obviously, season 18 and season 7, which were two science-oriented seasons, which were a big influence on your fandom. So here's the question. Liz Shaw or Romana 2? Oh, you're killing me here. <laughs> I will accept yeah, the answer, um, yes. Yes, yes, the answer is definitely yes. Yeah, I, I'm not a just the one kind of a person, so <laughs> I get that vote. Uh, another point on the book, uh, it came to my mind as I was reading. I don't know if you intended to bring it up. Doctor Who has a very large percentage of mad scientists. And when Malcolm Hulk was being given the series Bible for series seven, or season seven, I should say, uh, he looks at... Terrence Dixon goes, you've now limited yourself to two types of stories, alien invasion and mad scientist, which is the impetus for having the Silurians in the first place, where we're the alien invaders and the aliens are already here. But is the John Pertwee Doctor himself a mad scientist in the negative sense of the term? Uh, yeah, I, th I think he, he is a little bit, um, uh, or at least he kind of wears that, that costume a bit. Um, um, and, and I mean, I think the kind of the mad scientist, you know, like, like it's such, it's such an easy trope, right? It's just, you know, you, you, you have like Professor Kettleman, right? It just looks this sort of Einstein-like part with like the crazy hair, the bow tie. Like, you know, you can basically cosplay as the mad scientist without even really looking one up, right? Um, it's, it's a very easy stereotype. Um, and also the thing is, it's like you don't really offend anyone by having this stereotype because most scientists don't really care about it. <laughs> like, you know, so like, you know, I understand why this why this is everywhere, um, and and I think it, it it's underpinned by a very real fear of science. I think a lot of people are afraid of things they don't understand. But that's you know I guess is bringing us back to where we started here of like you know there's a lot of fear out there, and 
you know, this fear often gets misplaced. And I think a lot of it is put into kind of like, well, there's, there's people smarter than me. And, you know, they're obviously plotting to destroy the world because what else, what else could explain where, where things are at? And, you know, and if the answer is actually no one's in charge, there's no hand on the rudder, things are completely chaotic, right? That's a way more terrifying answer for many people. So they'd rather believe that somebody evil's in charge. Um, and, you know, at least there's somebody smart out there. Maybe they're plotting to destroy everything, but at least they have their hand on the rudder, right? And so that's a comforting, comforting thought. Um, and so this is, this is why conspiracy theory is very popular, right? Because it just basically says, I believe in somebody knowing what's happening. I, and I'm kind of like, oh, oh, I admire your optimism. Like, it's, you know, the, the truth is actually much, much more mundane and much scarier, which is like, actually, like, there, there isn't anyone in control, right? You know, we, we live in a chaotic world and, you know, you kind of have to bumble along as best you can. And I think science is one of those things that is, is designed to make sense of the chaotic world. Right. So, you know, I feel like if we just like harness the power of conspiracy theory and make them all into scientists, we would have solved so many problems. I don't know how we do that, but we should. Well, coming from the United States of the first week of January 2021, that hits uncomfortably close to home. So you touch on in Chapter 6 about the history of pandemics and vaccines. And I did not know this at all, and I literally fell off my chair reading this for the first time. The word vaccine comes from the scientific term for cowpox, and there was a pushback to the smallpox vaccine because people were actually afraid of becoming half-human, calf-how hybrids? Yes. You're, you're <laughs> making that up, right? That's uh, totally fiction, right? No, no, I know. It, it's, it's so, but the thing is, that's so ludicrous, right? This was in the 1800s. Um, so the idea of, like, you know, people giving birth to cows and stuff like that, like, you know, it seems so nonsensical today that we laugh at it. This is entirely how the idea of vaccines and autism is going to look to future generations. They're going to be like, autism, what? It is completely nonsensical. Um, and yet people are like, oh, but, you know, I heard a rumor that you could become half a cow. Like, you know, it's, you know, it is just as nonsensical. And you, you take away the context of, of, you know, the society you come from. And, and these things are absolutely ridiculous. Um, uh, so, yeah, now, I mean, there was, there was an immediate pushback against vaccines by doctors. Doctors were the original anti-vaxxers because they said, well, these vaccine things are taking away our livelihood. Like, our job is to treat the sick. You can't heal the sick. That would be terrible. So, you know, doctors had to be brought on side, and it took time. It took, like, a generation for doctors to be talked around, to be like, no, no, these vaccine things are good, and they can help you, and you should be a proponent of them. And now, of course, doctors are pro-vaccine, but that didn't happen out of nowhere. And, and so, you know, the long, slow process of educating people, that's the real thing that makes the difference in the end. Right, and that's where we need to actually put our energies. I think, like, like the, the more I've kind of investigated this stuff, and the more I've traveled in the world, the more I realize that education is absolutely the key. Um, and you know, we live in a world where education is being chipped away at as well, <laughs> um, and also people are not often willing to learn, um, and then often not able to learn. And and so this is this is a really tough one. Um, on the other hand, it's a it's a free tool. We can do it very easily, um, but it involves a lot of talking, and it involves you know neighbors talking to neighbors. And in echo chambers, it's really hard to do, and it's not something that's going to happen online easily. <laughs> so you know, it's it's we live in a really tough moment in in, in history, I think, um, because we're, we're all all the tools we have that have led to like this great society we live in, and we really do live in great time. Like, you know, we we live in an you know an unparalleled time of health and and abundance and so on, and yet you know it's also like. We, we're determined not to enjoy this, and they're also determined to like pull it apart. And we absolutely don't need to. Um, and yeah, these, these are these are definitely like giant problems. I mean, I think you know, uh, I mean, pandemics are one of those kind of great levelers because in in you know the 
you know, 14th century and stuff like that, and the you know, era of the Black Plague and stuff like that, like, you know, people would, would go to the, the church and be like, you know, hey, you know, all my, all my children are dying, what do I do? And the church would give out instructions, and people would do those instructions, and then they, they would die, and then clergy would die. And what happened was, over a long time, it broke the back of the church, and the church was never as powerful again. Um, and so you see all kinds of, like, you know, societal knock-on effects, right? So, you know, like, because the, the plague was killing, like, all the, the serfs who worked in all the fields and stuff, they said, well, we don't have enough, like, you know, laborers because all the poor people are dying. That's what pandemics generally do is disproportionately take up the poor. They said, well, you know, we need to go get some more people. So then they invented colonization and went and found people elsewhere and brought them back. So, you know, again, massive changes to societies are happening, driven by diseases a lot of the time because diseases force people into panics. Right. And and this is, you know, we're in another one of those moments, right? We are going to see massive changes to society happening. We're already seeing them um, because, you know, like, what do you do against 4,000 deaths a day? Like, that's one you can't kind of argue away, right? And so, you know, you can try lots of things. You can try drinking bleach or whatever, right? And it's not going to work out. <laughs> and eventually you discover this, and then you're going to lose your faith in the people telling you to drink the bleach. Um, and so this, this analogy extends to a lot of things in, in our modern, modern world. And I'm coming to you from Brooklyn, New York, which on paper is one of the more liberal and progressive cities in the United States, and yet we have this massively large anti-vax population, and we were the epicenter of a measles outbreak about a year ago, shortly before the novel coronavirus. Now, my kid's pediatrician has this very fiercely worded vaccine policy in every one of his exam rooms, and it says vaccines are a victim of their success. None of you have ever had to treat a child who's had any of these diseases, And he goes on to say that if you insist on not getting a vaccine, we're kicking you out of the practice. You can't even come here anymore, which is an island of sanity in terms of what's going on. So even here in the States, in a place like Brooklyn, you have this anti-vax community, which is causing tremendous damage. And that was even before the coronavirus got here, where you have folks protesting against the wearing of masks and protesting against... The vaccine, and with the government having botched the vaccine rollout, that's uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish. People are now protesting a vaccine that you can barely get. Uh, but we're uh, getting into some pretty dark territory again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the one of the key things is that humans are not good at risk assessment. We're really terrible at it, right? And so people sort of, you know, like like they're making judgments based on very very tiny amounts of information, right? And you're like, oh, I heard a, a boogeyman story about a vaccine, right? So therefore, I don't want this this bad thing in my body. So you start reasoning about stuff, and then they, you know, go and eat a hamburger or smoke a cigarette or whatever, <laughs> like you know, and you're like, these things are way worse. I, I mean, you know, like processed meat is is a grade one cancer causing thing, right? It's been you know, rigorously proven that, you know, processed meat causes cancer. And yet people like, go, oh, well, whatever, you've got to die of something. You know, <laughs> it's like, but not a vaccine. Oh, my God. Um, so it's, it's you know, it's kind of, it would be funny if it wasn't so so terrible, right? It's like, you know, oh, if only something could cure COVID-19. Okay, well, do you want it? No, no, we don't want it. <laughs> like, you know, and, uh, and I think where it really stems from is kind of this, like, uh, you know, it's really about control, right? People want to have control over their own destinies, and they mostly don't, right? Very few of us have control over our own destinies, but we live in an illusion of control, um, and so that illusion is very powerful, and I think the danger is when the illusion becomes more powerful than, than the reality, right? And so by saying, like, well, I don't want a vaccine, you're taking a step of control, um, but also what you're doing is you're refuting the idea that somebody else has to go and solve my problems through kind of like, you know, unsexy things like, you know, education and science and kind of experimenting and stuff like that. Um, and also that you're at the mercy of these things. Like, you you know, 
like if, if the next pandemic comes, and I say if, I really mean when, there will be more, right? You know, what do we do? We just kind of have to sit around and hope that somebody's trained enough and well-funded enough and educated enough to invent this vaccine that will save my life. Um, and, and what do I do? I do nothing about it, right? It's like, I just have to kind of hope for the best. And that's a really scary place to be in. And, you know, like, I think we as humans have a really, really powerful tool at our disposal, which is called stories, right? We can tell each other stories. And we've been doing that for a very, very, very long time. And, you know, this is what Doctor Who is. And we do this very well. But we can also tell ourselves stories that are completely untrue. And we believe them. And, and we're very good at also doing that. Um, so this is both, our, our, you know, one of our greatest abilities and also one of our worst. Um, and so, you know, uh, like, I mean, they sort of say, you know, everyone has two brains, right? There's the lizard brain and then there's the higher brain. And we use our lizard brains most of the time. And you have to actually really consciously put your lizard brain on hold and stop and step back and think, you know, more quietly, more calmly and so on and access the higher brain. And most people don't do that and actually have not really been trained to do that. It takes a real conscious effort. Um, and so if you just knee-jerk lizard reacting to everything, right, you know, like, yeah, vaccines are a hard sell because you have to actually kind of walk through this, this process. Now, you mentioned stories, and of course, the Silurians is not the only Doctor Who story with a life-threatening pandemic. You mentioned a couple in the book, and the only ones that I could remember as I was doing my notes for this interview were the Sensorites, uh, the Ark, and Praxius, two of the three of which we've already touched on in the last hour. Is Silurians the best Plague story, um, number one, in terms of story quality, and secondly, in terms of the scientific method approach to solving the virus. Uh, yeah, I think I think the, the most powerful thing about the Silurians is it actually shows you the plague, right? It's like, you know, when, when you have that scene in, in, you know, the London train station where, like, you know, Terrence Dix is the ticket inspector and, like, you know, and they, and they all start falling down from the plague. Like, that is incredibly powerful stuff. Whereas I think most of the other ones, they just show plague as backstory, right? Or it's or it's a boogeyman threat or something. Um, and so you know th these are these are effective storytelling tools. But I think that it's way more effective to see something happening than to kind of you know talk about it theoretically. Um, and so that's that's for me where the length of the story really comes back to to tie into this because like if you don't have that length, you don't get the luxury of showing like you know people falling down from a plague and that's not really essential. Right? You can still tell your same story without showing those scenes, and yet. I think it's absolutely essential. It is absolutely part of what makes this story so powerful is that you see the effects of it. And the same thing with finding the antidote. You show it's hard, right? It's not just like, oh, the doctor, like, you know, waved a sonic screwdriver and in five minutes, like, with some technobabble, came up with a, with a vial that just pops out, right? It's like, you know, it is... It is difficult. It is time-consuming. It is mostly failure, right? And, you know, and, and then also, you know, Liz has to take over then because, like, the doctor gets kidnapped and stuff like that. And then, like, you know, she's back to the drawing board a bit. And, like, you know, it is really difficult stuff to do. Um, and and that's that's how science is. It's, it's, I think, like, you know, it's a very good depiction of both the problem and the solution. I think when Jeffrey Palmer's character dies, he actually dies in a stairwell face-first into the camera, which is incredibly graphic for a show that was making the Crotons the years before. So they pretty much yeah. put the virus right up in your face, and it probably gave a whole generation of British schoolchildren nightmares in 1970. 
I mean, actually, one, one of the things that I'm very proud of discovering as part of this book um, is the smallpox outbreak um, a few years before. And, and I was able to place Malcolm Hulk in the UK because he wasn't always there. Uh, but Malcolm Hulk was definitely in the UK because he was, he was writing the war games at the time um, when there was the, the British um, smallpox outbreak. Um, and, and I'm like, this was in all the newspapers. This was headlines that were like cities living in fear. And so I was like, okay, so Malcolm Hulk is sitting around, you know, with Terence Dix and he's looking at the newspaper and saying like, a plague is decimating Britain. And he's like, hmm, I wonder what, what that would be like as a story. Like, and I was like, this is a clear antecedent of Doctor and the Silurians. And I have never seen this, this done before. So I was, I was very pleased to, to figure that out. Uh, took quite a bit of digging, but you know, it's like, if you've lived through it, Right, it's really visceral, and and I think you know you see exactly the same thing with like Terry, uh, sorry Terry Nation and, and you know the Daleks and you know like fascism and stuff like that because he, you know he lived through these times and so of course that comes out in the writing and I think that you know like the plague to us just looks like this well until COVID nineteen anyway it just looked like this sort of like oh yeah you know it's a scary kind of thing that you could have but I think if you've lived through kind of like you know whole cities are being shut down and like you know death is everywhere um kind of like you know this is absolutely terrifying because there's nothing you can do about it kind of times then yeah that comes through in the writing and i think that's that's part of what makes dr Silurians i think so powerful is because there's a there's a real authenticity to the to this play um and and i i think i know why the last chapter of the book which is black archive number 39 the silurians you try and figure out why the Doctor was exiled to Earth one story before this and what exactly the Time Lords had him there to prevent. And you speculate that he was sent specifically to prevent this Silurian plague from wiping out humanity and thus erasing the future. I have never thought of that before, and I've been a Doctor Who fan for almost as long as you have. Is this original thinking of yours, or is this an idea that you've heard elsewhere? This is absolutely original thinking. Uh, yeah, no, they, actually, it's funny because I didn't. I, I, I originally had chapter seven was going to be something else, um, and and then I, I realized what I was talking about in, in an earlier chapter basically was was what I planned for chapter seven. So I didn't have an ending for the book for a while, um, and then uh, basically I, as I was you know kind of going back and forth with Anthony Wilson a bit, he was sort of like, ah, oh, all the stuff you're saying about the Doctor is really interesting here. Like you know, like he's such a complex character and so on. And he's like, he's like, I think you need to talk more about this. And I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right, actually. And it was just sort of a like, yeah, let me wrap it up with the Doctor. Actually, that makes sense. I've, I've you know talked about him lots of different ways through the book, but actually, he's so central, and I haven't really made him central. So okay, that's that's my like short little final chapter. But then as I started thinking about like, okay, let me really delve into what is the Doctor doing here, um, and kind of what difference does he make? And the the difference he makes is he invents that that antidote, and and you're like. You know, the, the Time Lords did send him saying there were like going to be these threats to Earth. And you're like, well, here's one. And, you know, you, you only have to extrapolate a little bit further forward because it's only like, you know, two stories earlier that he gets exiled to Earth. Um, and yet, because it's across a season and across a doctor and so on, we don't think of those, you know, the War Games and the Silurians as being that close as, as neighbors. Um, and yet, they, they so obviously are. And they're written by the same writer. So, you know, and, you know, and script editor and stuff. Uh, not that I think it was explicitly planned this way, but I think that the resonance comes in really nicely, actually. Um, and yeah, I was, I was quite pleased with, with this because I was like, mm, I, the more I thought about it, the more I think this actually does hold some water. You have some fairly harsh words for the doctor throughout the book, and you point out all the ways in which he makes the story worse before he has the antidote and makes everything better. Just to spitball for a moment, how would other doctors in the exact same story have handled this better or worse? Starting, I guess, with Jodie Whittaker. <laughs> uh, well, 
I think, so actually Jodie Whittaker is a great example because Jodie Whittaker was just nicer to people. And I think if the doctor had been nicer to Quinn and just willing to hear him out instead of just like, like arguing with him at every opportunity, the story would have been over many episodes earlier, right? And so, you know, basically, you know, Quinn basically reaches out to the doctor and kind of is like, you know, like, mm, I kind of need some help. And the doctor just starts belittling him. And then Quinn like just clams up and like doesn't, doesn't talk anymore. And I think had Quinn just actually explained what was going on, the doctor could have actually helped, you know, like made the connection with the Silurians much earlier before things had escalated. So I think that like almost any doctor would have actually like listened to the guy. Um, actually, when we would, uh, Graham Burke and I were writing um, Who's 50 and we were looking sort of through the, the things, um, like Graham, Graham had the theory that the third doctor is kind of like, you know, he's got sort of like, you know, Time Lord Asperger syndrome. And, and so he just, he can't really connect to people. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. I haven't thought about that, but it's, it's really true. He's just, He's really rude to people around him for no particular reason. And, like, you know, like, his friends just basically put up with it. Like, you know, the Brigadier is like, oh, yes, whatever. <laughs> like, um, um, and, you know, I mean, less, less so with this story a bit. But, like, um, you know, like, the, the, the Doctor is not a people person in his third incarnation. Um, whereas the Jodie Whittaker Doctor, for example, really is a people person. Um, so I think this would have, would have changed things a lot. Um, and, but, it, but it happens all the time. Like, there's all these little moments of escalation that are happening through the story, um, you know, and sort of Major Barker, you know, bursts in and starts, like, you know, like, ranting about Silurians, and the Doctor just starts, you know, mocking him, and it doesn't help the case. <laughs> and and, and this, this is, you know, sort of over and over again. Um, so I, I think that's, that's a real indictment of the third Doctor's character. Well, Dr. Quinn dies in episode three, so what you're saying is the Silurians is four episodes too long. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so what I'd like to do now is have a reading from the book, and you're the author, and I've invited you to read a short selection. Yes, I am going to read from, well, it was Jason's suggestion, actually, but I love it. Uh, it's the very last page of the book, um, last proper page, um, and uh, this is discussing the third Doctor, uh, but it's kind of wrapping up the book as a whole as well. The third Doctor is an absolutely fascinating character. He's in many ways the most human of Doctors, but he's also one of the weakest, especially here in his grittier first season. He may look like a high-class diplomat, an expert negotiator, but he's actually terrible at both. He's unable to play the game of schmoozing politicians, that's pretty much Diplomacy 101, and he can't even persuade his friend not to commit genocide. And yet, he's still our moral compass. Quinn aside, almost everyone's first instinct upon seeing a monster is to attack it. The Doctor's is to shake hands with it. For all the flaws of this complex character, it's that essence that makes him truly wonderful. He never lets his arrogance or anger get the better of him, never rushes into attacking something just because it's different, and he consistently tries to make peace, even in the face of hopelessness and utter failure. Perhaps, in the end, that's the best that any of us can do. Finally, let's return to where all this started, the cyclotron. We never find out what becomes of it. It appears to be working at the story's conclusion, but the world never gets limitless cheap energy, so we can assume it failed. Though if the sequels are right, and the explosives only sealed the entrance rather than killed the Silurians, what's to stop it all from happening all over again? Presumably, the Doctor and Unit leave, Wenley Moore starts running experiments again, and they wake the Silurians up, which is why they're out and about in the future. Only this time without Quinn or the Doctor to bridge the gap. So perhaps it was all for naught. There should have been another way. That was terrific. Thank you. And the book is The Black Archive, number 39, The Silurians. But, Stacy, having discussed the book and The Silurians, there's a lot of adjunct topics that I want to talk about as we wrap up the interview. Uh, you mentioned Major Barker earlier. And, of course, you and I both know on television the character is Major Baker. 
those of us from the 1980s who grew up uh, at the Church of the Target novelization probably know Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, which was one of the very first Target books, even better than the Silurians because it was more widely available for decades. And in the novelization, Major Baker becomes Major Barker. And there's a lot of significant changes from the screen to the page. Which would you have to choose, the TV episodes or the book? Oh, that's a, that's a tough choice uh, because, I mean, the, the book, I think, is, is more pure Malcolm Hulk, uh, which, you know, makes perfect sense because it's only him writing it effectively. Um, and it, there are, there, you know, all the nuances and layers that are in the story, which I think are absolutely fantastic, obviously, um, you get even more of them in the in the story. And and, and Hulk's, Hulk's level writing is, is, is astonishing. Uh, I mean, you know, it's funny because, you know, you look at someone like Robert Holmes, who was like an absolute master of television, and he writes like the two doctors novelization and it's okay but Malcolm Hulk wow he could really he could jump from one to the other I mean I think you know Terrence Dix was a better novelist than he was a scriptwriter but Malcolm Hulk he's firing all cylinders here um, so you know it's I mean I guess they're very different media um, and of course the Silurians as a TV show has you know lots and lots of other factors happening you've got you know directors and actors and music and um, you know sounds i mean the music is, is a comedy one a bit uh, you know <laughs> let's say experimental um you know obviously you don't have the music in the, in the novel to be charitable um, experimental yes, yes. <laughs> exactly yes. Um, and so um, so so you, you have many more there's many more players happening in, in a tv episode um um, and but of course you can reach many more people in a TV show, um, and so you know I, I think they're just they're just different beasts. But on the other hand, man, is that novel a good one? Um, and it is so rich. And you're, you're absolutely right because I, as I said, Major Barker, I was like, wait, is that that's the novel one, isn't it? And I was like, oh, <laughs> and, and so I'm so glad you picked me up on that um, because because the novel. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've actually only read that novel once. And I, I was thinking of rereading it for for the um, the Black Archive, um, but they were actually clamping down on any kind of like non TV sources. Um, I, I actually had a whole bit where I was talking about you know what happens in the new adventures um it, it's a little bit of it left but it, it got very much pared down um because they do explicit sequels to this in, in the you know the 1990s um virgin novels um there, you know there's lots of other places where the slurrings pop up in other media um and they basically didn't want that and they understand why um but you know that, that's a lot of my my comfort zone is talking about all these other like you know elements of doctor who especially in print you have a very funny footnote talking about blood heat where blood heat is a jim mortimer alternate universe novel, which is a sequel not to the TV episode, it's a sequel to the novelization. So Dr. Lawrence, who runs the underground installation at Wenley Moore, in the TV episode he's an anti-vaxxer, and he dies of, predictably, the plague. On the, in the book he's more sympathetic, and he's killed by the Silurians trying to defend the power room against their invasion in the episode 7 material. And Bloodheat actually picks up and they find Dr. Lawrence's body thrown through a plate glass door, which is how he's uh, killed in the book. Um, I'm going to urge you to read the book again. I'll tell you that after Trump won the election in late 2016, I was sort of in emotional panic. And one of the ways that I distracted myself was starting a reread of the novelizations in publication order, starting with Doctor Who and the Daleks by David Whitaker. So <clears throat> the Silurians, I think being the fourth book overall comes up pretty fast and I'm sitting there and I'm reading it and the brigadier brings the doctor to Wendley Moore introduces him to the staff and they're talking about limitless free energy and the brigadier in the book, not on TV but in the book, he says this project will make Britain great again 
And I was like, oh, no, Brigadier, you're not a Trumper, are you? Uh, one of my friends pointed out, well, Great Britain actually could become great again, whereas America was never great America. But even so, it's a rather unkind cut. Uh, but the book does a lot more getting you into the head of the secondary and tertiary characters. And the chapter told from Miss Dawson's point of view is almost like a short story in and of itself, even cutting out the science fiction, talking about how she became uh, an older, unmarried scientist. Really, really good stuff in the novelization, and I'm sorry that you couldn't get it into the uh, Black Archive. But you also mentioned there are several sequels to the story. And let's just do a quick drive-by of these. The Sea Devils. Yes, so The Sea Devils is, is it's only an episode shorter, and yet it's so much less than the Doctor of the Silurians. And, and it's like they, they, they're, they're already trying to do it in Fast Forward. Um, and so there's sort of this like moral debate-ish that happens in f- super fast forward. Um, and, you know, where Dr. The Silurians, like, they go back and forth, back and forth between, like, the multiple signs, the multiple agendas, and so on. And the Silurians, basically, the doctor says, well, I gave you a chance, and now I'm flicking the switch, and now it's war. And, you know, it's like, he just, he just kills the, the sea devils, you know, without really any debate. And and you're like, something is really lost here. Um, and and it's funny, because the master condemns him for the actions in the Silurians, um, which is, is quite fascinating. And he's sort of like, how does the master actually know this? But, you know, it's, it's, quite, a, it's, it's quite a damning thing. Actually, what was very interesting about writing, writing the, um, the stuff about, like, the Brigadier and genocide and so on, was the, the publishers completely disagreed with my interpretation. And we, we went at it a lot, because they were like, and, and I think many fans are like, oh, no, it wasn't genocide. No, 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 the, the Silurians survived. The, the doctor, you know, like, you know, to stop the Brigadier, or sorry, failed to stop the Brigadier sealing the caves, and they just got sealed in. But if you look at everything in the story itself, and also what's said in the Sea Devils, it's very clear that, that the Brigadier murdered the Silurians, right? It is, it is, you know, it's basically even said in, in the opening of the Ambassadors of Death. Um, and, and this was absolutely clearly the intention at the time, and it's retconned later, um, which is, you know, fair enough. You want to tell more stories of the Silurians. I understand they're great. They're, they're a great tool. But I don't think it's worth discounting the fact, like, you know, they were murdered by the Doctor's friend, and then the Doctor does nothing about this. He, he basically complains a little bit in the opening of the Ambassadors of Death. They exchange this very meaningful look when he first sees him in the next story, and then it's all is forgotten and, and forgiven. And uh, actually, they cut another line from, from the book, which I understand why they cut it, which I said, the Brigadier has disguised balls in his pocket. Uh, <laughs> oh. I, I, I actually mean that as... <laughs> it is kind of true. The Brigadier has this pet scientist who will solve all his problems, and he knows from Doctor and the Silurians that the Doctor will not stand up to him because the Brigadier, when chips are down, can murder an entire alien species and get away with it. Right? And this is harsh. This is really hard-hitting stuff. And you're kind of like, if they played this through, Doctor Who would not have survived Season 7 because there'd be no more stories to tell. So I understand why they, why they downplayed it, but it's absolutely in there. And, and you know, it's, it's just, you know, I, I find it really interesting that... that you know, it's like the faces of Morbius. Like, fandom has just kind of collectively decided to, like, you know, retcon this away because they don't like it. Um, and yet it is, it is very much built into the story itself. Um, and I think the Sea Devils actually was a great piece of information for me to, like, be like, oh, yes, yes, actually, this is clearly intended and it's written down in dialogue later on as well. Um, so, so they, I mean, they came around to the end, and I'm, I'm really glad they made me fight for it because it, I think it's one of the most important parts of the book. And I didn't realize how much resistance there was to this idea. And the Sea Devils doesn't even have the Brigadier in it, so he doesn't even have a chance to redeem himself. Uh, now, you've already taken a run at Warriors of the Deep earlier. I'm going to defend that story. It was one of my first. It was the first Silurian story that I saw, and it was one of the episodes that solidified my fandom. 
And you even quote the last line of Warriors of the Deep in the last line of the Black Archive. So why do you think... I'm not even talking about the Mirka. Why do you think Warriors of the Deep is not as great a story? I, I think it's just it's too black and white, right? I mean, I, like I like the idea of taking the Silurians and making it a Cold War analog. Uh, it's a really cool idea, but they just they just they're basically just plain bad guys. And the only thing that suggests they're not just plain bad guys is that line of the Doctors at the end. Like, it is a fantastic line. Like, oh my god, there should have been another way. Absolutely. And yet everything that the Silurians and the Sea Devils do is clearly evil, right? <laughs> they're just, you know, basically just waging this, this invasion with this super weapon onto this base and so on. And like, hey, I get the analogy and everything. But, like, the Cold War was not actually, you know, good versus evil. The Cold War was, like, two different powers with two different agendas, you know, and, you know, like all wars are and so on. And, that, you know, that's Dr. the Silurians really succeeds for me because it's like you see both sides and your sympathies are not really on either one or conversely like they're not against either one like you know you you understand entirely why the Silurians want what they want in Dr. the Silurians because like yeah they just want their home like we wouldn't want that right and you understand why the humans want what they want too they're like yeah this is scary new monster that's like you know like you know threatening their, their energy and like you know like all the positions are reasonable and you can have this nuanced debate. Whereas you go to Warriors of the Deep and the positions are not nuanced at all. Nothing about that story is nuanced except perhaps the final line. Um, so yeah, that, that's, I mean, like all the bad production aside, like that's my real criticism of it. It's, it, it really kind of, you know, just, it just turns, turns these very nuanced monsters into something that's, that's not nuanced at all. And that loses something very powerful from Dr. and the Silurians. The Silurians turned up several times in the books as well. And Jim Mortimer, who did Bloodheat, also wrote Eternity Weeps, which is one of the last of the new adventures with the Seventh Doctor, in which there is a plague that wipes out humanity, and the Doctor is not able to stop it. This is the book, I believe, where Liz Shaw is romantically involved with a Silurian. Yes, I love that, actually. I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Of course she would be. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it's really cool. I mean, I think at the time, a lot of people were really upset because it, it killed off Liz Shore. Although if you look at the timelines, I, I think it, you know, it's set in 2003. Um, you know, she, you know, like... Caroline John lived a bit longer than that, but not in the scheme of things that much longer. Um, so it seemed like this shocking thing to do, although, you know, like she would have been about 60 at the time. It wasn't like she was 25. Um, so, you know, like it, it had a lot of controversy. It is a great book. I, I had to read it fairly recently for a bookworm. And, oh, my God, I read it in like one bus ride. <laughs> like I was just like, oh, my God, I cannot put this thing down. It is so gripping. You, you, you struggle to draw breath. I think it is, is, it is, is so, so, so intense a book. Um, what's interesting is it's, it's the last real gasp of like the Silurian fear, right? So, so in Dr. The Silurians, they have this like, you know, humans meet the Silurians, have this race memory that makes them absolutely terrified of, of the Silurians. And it's a huge advantage these, these you know, creatures have. Um, and yet in other Silurian stories, humans go, oh, a Silurian, you know, how interesting. Um, and you're kind of like, well, why, why is this? What happened here? And actually, my, my theory in Bookworm, uh, which I was quite, quite pleased with, um, was that it's, it's Bernice. All right, so, so Benny is like, you know, captured by the Silurians in Bloodheat, and then she is basically like, they, they remove the, the kind of race fear from her, um, and then she then travels with the Doctor around the universe, um, and I think it's like a virus. So she basically spreads this, like, you know, Silurian kind of like, you know, like, like, you know, vaccine, if you will. Um, and, and what happens? Well, in that, you know, in that universe, you see a lot more Silurians happening. Like, they're popping up all the time in backgrounds and so on. And I think this is actually really powerful because, like, when the Silurians are this, you know, terrifying creature that, like, upon sight, you, you, you know, you, you're absolutely terrified of, and therefore, what are you going to do? You're going to try and murder them. 
right? What do you see? You see Silurids are completely, you know, exterminated at the end of Doctor and the Silurids. But when the Silurids are this benign thing that, you know, you just say, oh, here's a Silurian, humanity has no need to wipe out the Silurians, and then the two races can coexist. Um, so I actually think the timelines diverged at some point, and, and Bernice was, was responsible. So that's my pet theory, and I'm sticking to it. <sighs> Interesting. <clears throat> now, you are, as I mentioned earlier, quite prolific. Uh, talk a little bit about the ratings guide. Oh, yes. The Doctor Who Ratings Guide is a Doctor Who review website. Um, and uh, I didn't start it, but I took over it in uh, 1999. <laughs> so it's been quite a long time since I've been managing it. And uh, I think I wrote my first review for it in 1997. Um, and the idea is that you can write reviews of anything, anything Doctor Who related. Um, anyone may send in, you know, anything at all. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, there's a small minimum word count, there's, you know, reasonable maximum word count. Otherwise, say whatever you want. Um, and and I, I like this a lot because I feel it's a very egalitarian thing uh, because anyone can can review anything. And I mean, I, I, as an editor, just clean up the language a bit, uh, but people are welcome to write stuff, and they do. And, you know, we have, like, you know, more than 8,000 reviews now. I think we had about 800 when I took over. So I've increased it by more than a factor of 10, which is <laughs> quite, quite amazing. Um, yeah, so, you know, Jason, you are you are a prolific contributor to, to this. Uh, my, my backlog of reviews for you is quite large. Um, you know, we'll get through them eventually. Um, but what I like about it actually is is I feel like uh, you know there's nothing to stop people talking about other people's reviews, for instance, right? And and my requirement was that you can absolutely respond to someone else. You just have to do it in the form of a review yourself. So like you know you, you don't like what someone said about Trial of a Time Lord, write your own review of Trial of a Time Lord, and you can argue all you like. And what I found is by forcing people to basically be a bit creative rather than just doing a knee jerk response. Oh my goodness! The discussions become rich, and and you know it's like people are forced to actually like you know put their flag in the sand and like you know say say depthful things, even if it's not that deep. Rather than just a knee jerk kind of Twitter response, it changes the whole nature of the debate. So you know I solved the internet. <laughs> I like to use my review titles to directly respond to reviews that I disagree with. So there's a review of a novelization where the review title from the original poster was "Good Book, Bad Story." And I thought the reviewer completely misunderstood the book, so I titled my review, Great Book, Bad Story. <laughs> so I can do that yeah, sort of thing, awesome. thanks to your lenient editing pencil. <clears throat> and we're going to close out the uh, discussion here by bringing you in on a long-standing trap one tradition, which I am inventing for the first time today. There's a couple of interview programs in America where they close with a questionnaire. Uh, on Inside the Actor's Studio, it's called the Pivot Questionnaire. The host asks a series of short questions, and the interviewee has to give a quick, instant word association response. There's a sports-based version of the same show here in New York called Center Stage, which is called the Hit and Run Questionnaire, Hit and Run being a baseball term. I don't have a good Doctor Who term for this, but I'm going to give you a quick bunch of prompts. Please give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are these limited to one word? Uh, just one answer. Let's make it ten words or less. Okay. Barry Letts or Terrence Dix? Oh, definitely Terrence Dix. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I admire Barry Letts, but definitely Terrence Dix. <laughs> Classic series or new series? Classic series all the way. I love it. It's, it's three actors standing in front of a black curtain convincing you that it's an alien planet, and they do. I am totally on board. Blonde or brunette? I like my doctors in any shape they come in. Again, I will accept yes as an answer. <laughs> Silurians or ice warriors? Oh, oh, Silurians for sure. But great, great analogy. Yes, yes, definitely Silurians, my favorite reptile. Ottawa or New York City? 
New York City. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I mean, right now, Ottawa, but generally New York City. We will get back after this uh, pandemic thing is over, I promise. Favorite companion? I, geez, you give me the hard ones. <laughs> uh, maybe Ace, but ask me tomorrow and it's a different answer. All right, we'll do part two tomorrow. Christopher H. Bidmead or Stephen Moffat? Stephen Moffat by a whisker. I'm going to go with Bidmead on that because Moffat was very much a hand-wavy, timey-wimey, magical realism and things happen for no apparent reason. I preferred Bidmead's discipline where everything is rooted in science and the story is told in a very linear fashion. But yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think if you're going, the question is who's better on science? Then, then there's no, no contest. I think who's better on dramatic structure, though, I think is, is Moffat for me. I think Bidmead is better on story. Moffat is perhaps better on storytelling. Just in terms of the ratings, Moffat increased the audience and Bidmead unfortunately shrunk it. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, as a, as a hardcore fan, I think it's Bidmead all the way, but I can understand your opinion. Favorite Doctor Who quote? Uh, uh, Ark in space. Um, indomitable. It's, it's, it, it's everything about the wonder and the joy of, of exploring. Uh, so that, that, that to me is probably my favorite, I think. And we've talked quite a bit about your Doctor Who work. As a last question, what are some non-Doctor Who projects that you're on right now that we can see in the future? Oh, actually, I, so the Black Archive is published by Obverse Books, and they've just recently launched um, the Silver Archive, which is basically take the Black Archive idea, which is kind of write in depth about something, and apply it to other, other TV shows. So I've just finished a, a Silver Archive on the show Millennium from the 90s. Um, and so, you know, my, my you know, <coughs> research for this has involved Googling uh, serial killers, uh, euthanasia, uh, guns in schools, uh, <laughs> Gnostic texts, <laughs> pandemics, uh, you know, you name it, and I'm sure the FBI has a file open on me right now. Um, and so, yes, it's it's not quite a laugh a minute, but it's it's very in depth, um, and it's, it's a similar idea to the Black Archive here. At the same time, I have a comedy book with Bill Evanson that's about to come out from Hensel Tick Publishing. Um, so these are the most polarized books that I could possibly imagine writing ever. <laughs> so, so the yes, fun stuff ahead. And just to give a plug for myself, the forthcoming outside-in book on the last half of X-Files and Millennium will have an essay by me on one of the Millennium Season 2 stories. Millennium Season 2, I think you once described as the best series of a television show you've never heard of? Yes, absolutely. It's, 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 Millennium was a great show, um, and, and Season 1 was like, like very dark and kind of a bit repetitive, so people people switched off. It, I mean, it, its pilot had the had the highest rated. Um, it was the highest rated pilot ever shown at the time, um, but the, the viewers dropped off. But season two is this magical, amazing season where they throw out everything from season one, start all over, and it is joyful and incredible. And you know, this one episode is the funniest episode on TV, um, and you know, which you don't imagine from this dark millennium show. Um, and so I would say, yeah, it's the best show you've ever watched. Um, so I hope, I hope to revive it a bit with uh, not one but two publications forthcoming on Millennium. And I was very flattering of the season two story that I chose to write about. And when is that volume of Outside In coming out? Uh, it, is, it is almost done. I'm, I, I've got a couple of stragglers uh, who are almost almost finishing their pieces, hopefully this week, um, and then we will be ready to go. Um, so yes, so I would say early in 2021. My philosophy of writing is the Douglas Adams philosophy, which is I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they go past. 
See, see, my philosophy of writing is also Douglas Adams, but it's not that quote. It's it's one that somebody described him as. They said, like, he spends a lot of time, like, getting greasy and dirty in the engine of the car so that the car will run very smoothly. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me. I really get in deep in there and, you know, tweaking and tweaking and fixing and so on. But, you know, I really like it that things, I think, go very smoothly as a result. And, Stacy, where can we find you on the Internet? Uh, I'm not a huge public internet person. Like, I have Facebook, but it's, you know, usually it's just for my friends. Um, and I'm not a Twitter person because, you know, I like nuance and subtlety. And <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what bad things has Twitter ever done in this world? Um, yeah, and so, yeah, no, I'm not really a, you know, an internet person. You could, I mean, you can find me through my website, so the Doctor Who Ratings Guide. Uh, I think just Google that. Um, is the easiest way. Also, the Cloister Library, which we recently finished after 21 years. Um, so that's a guide to all the Doctor Who novels and their continuity. It's, it's very in-depth and fanish. Um, but I think very fun. Um, so if you, you know, either read the novels in the 90s and, you know, haven't read them since or didn't read them and want to know what was going on and what all the continuity is and so on, um, you can check that out. So that's the close to library. And I will say that Twitter actually banned Donald Trump yesterday. So maybe sanity is beginning to prevail. Yeah, four years too late, but sure. <laughs> and of course, by the time this episode broadcasts, he may be back under a fake name and a fake mustache. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, predicting the future is very difficult. Stacy, thank you very much for coming on Trap One. Pleasure to have you. The book again is The Black Archive, number 39, The Silurians, by Stacy Smith, writing as Robert Smith. Stacy, thank you so much again. Thank you very much for having me. Great hound out. And thank you for listening to the Trap One podcast. This is Jason filling in for Mark. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 